Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Another day, another national poll showing Joe Biden with a double-digit lead over President Trump. Today, it's a poll by ABC and The Washington Post. CNN's recent poll had Biden up by even more. Head-to-head matchups have been showing Biden beating Trump all year long. Look at the breakdown of CNN's national polling since April. Right, It's been a crazy year, and yet this looks like a really sane, quiet time, just gentle waves lapping up and down, Biden always ahead of Trump. And yet, there are still so many people so nervous about this election and nervous to believe the polls. That was CNN's chief media correspondent, Brian Stelter, in a report last Sunday. Have you been following the latest polls? Are you among the Americans who ask, can I trust these polls? Today, where we live, we dig into polls and answer your questions about how they work and whether we should care about them. You can join our conversation today, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom is Courtney Kennedy. She's director of survey research at Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I think it's really important to talk about polls because uh, so many of us uh, notice them, especially before elections, but to really take a deep dive into how polls work. And so I think it's uh, great that you've been able to uh, set aside this hour uh, with us, Courtney. We really appreciate it. So we wanted to start with the basics uh, before we talk about what the latest polls are telling us. And when we think about public opinion polls, can you tell us who's included in those polls? How do they actually work? Sure. Um, Well, a public opinion poll is where we go out and interview a random sample of the public, right? And it's it's typically, you know, maybe a thousand people or so in a particular state or nationwide. And the idea is that if you do indeed have a good random sample that represents that area um, and you you gather those people's views on the issues, that that data can represent um, you know, the entire state or the entire country. Now, it's not perfect, right? Because we didn't talk to ev- to everyone. There, There is a margin of error that's important to keep in mind. But, but that's, you know, basically how it works. Before we learn more about margin of error, when we think about a, a thousand or so people that are included in these polls, why is that the number that works? Uh, and, and how can pollsters estimate how America feels when they only talk to about a thousand people for a particular poll? Sure. The the thousand kind of falls out of some statistical equations, but what it means is that at about a thousand interviews, you have that margin of error that's really pretty reasonable. So if if you do a survey at that size and you and it says you know fifty five percent of Americans you know think X, that fifty five percent is going to have a, a pretty modest um, you know error band around it. It's going to be about plus or minus three percentage points. That means, you know, that it's it's reasonably accurate. And I, I think the best way to explain the value of a thousand is to contrast it, right, with like a much smaller sample size. Let's say you only talk to 200 people. 
then your margin of error would be about 10 percentage points plus or minus. So that 55%, you know, that's what you got, but the real answer could be as high as 65% or as low as 45%. And at the end of the day, you really don't know, you know, it's just not precise enough to bother, you know, talking about or, or sharing with the public. So, you know, once we get to that threshold of about a thousand or so, then those error, you know, that, that margin of error shrinks a lot to the point where we have reasonable confidence that, you know, the, the, the data we gathered, um, you know, really do have meaning and, and represent broadly how people are feeling. Uh, Connecticut residents know that we actually have a public polling, uh, public opinion polling center in our state at Quinnipiac University. We did invite them onto today's show, uh, but they declined. I know they're busy leading up to Election Day, uh, Courtney, as well as the Pew Research Center. Uh, but I wanted to talk more about uh, margin of error. So I remember when I started out as a, a reporter and I was in another state and we were reading the latest uh, Quinnipiac University uh, poll results. Maybe it had to do uh, with the presidential election. It was always important to talk about margin of error. And so explain that a little bit more when someone's looking at a poll, why they should look at the margin of error for that particular poll. Yeah, no, that's right. That's really important. The reason is um, because poll estimates are, are not perfect. Again, we didn't talk to everybody. If you mm -hmm. do interview every single person in, in, say, the state of Connecticut, there is no margin of error. But when you draw a sample and, and do it uh, as a poll, there certainly is. And it, it just reflects the fact that you talk to some people and not everybody. And so there is some sample, what we call sampling error associated with that. So um, that's really important to keep in mind. And the other thing that most people don't realize is that there are broadly four ways that error can make its way into polling data. And the margin of error actually only speaks to one of those four, which is sampling error. But the reality is we also have error that comes from low response rates, that comes from sometimes polls don't give everybody in the state a chance of being selected. And error can also come from people um, not answering the questions correctly. Either maybe it was a bad question or, or, or maybe somebody um, kind of uh, didn't tell us exactly how they feel. So the bottom line there is, yep, there's the margin of error. you got to keep that in mind. But in the back mm -hmm. of your mind, if you're reading a poll, you should actually know that there's probably some other error in there as well. Not huge, but a bit more error that's actually not reflected in the margin of error. Again, you're hearing Courtney Kennedy here on Where We Live. She's Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center. As we take a deep dive into polling, if you have a question about polls uh, that you see or the methodology, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can we talk more about the people that are included uh, in polls uh, and finding that random sample, Courtney? Um, how um, is it done? I realize there's an ideal way, but there's also uh, reality. That's exactly right. So ideally, you draw a sample from a list or a, a database that, that includes everybody. You know, again, every, every single adult in the state or everybody in the country. And there's actually two ways to do that. One, I think your callers or, you know, your audience is probably familiar with, which is telephone numbers. And we can draw a, um, we can sample from all of the landline numbers in the US 
and all of the cell phone numbers in the U.S. So that works really well because almost everybody has one or the other, about 98% of the public. So we can sample phone numbers or um, the newer approach is actually to sample home addresses. And we can do that because the Postal Service actually makes available their master list of residential addresses. And where I work at Pew Research Center, we've switched in the last five or so years. We used to just do sampling cell phones and landlines, and we've moved to sampling addresses. So we draw a random national sample of addresses. We contact people initially through the mail, but we um, recruit them to take surveys online because obviously that's where a lot of society and, and, and daily life has mm -hmm. moved online. Um, so again, so that's the ideal, is that you start from a place where everybody is included and has a chance of being surveyed. Uh, but as you said, the reality today is a little bit different. While some pollsters do that random sampling, not everybody does. Um, a really kind of prevalent hmm. approach these days is to do a survey online, but with an opt-in sample or a convenience sample. And what I mean by that is it's, you know, a group of, again, maybe a thousand people using the internet, but they were not sampled from a source where everybody was represented. Instead, they were gathered, um, really, it tends to be a haphazard sort of ways, whether, you know, you might have seen uh, uh, an ad to take a survey in your social media feed or on a, a search engine page or something like that, or you might have got an email from, um, you know, uh, from, from a company wanting you to take a survey. So these other surveys that are done online, they're pretty popular. They're certainly faster and cheaper, but they don't start with a, a random sample. Mm. It sounds like you're describing uh, garbage polls, so to speak. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't quite go that far. Um, I mean, there's, there's, you know, it is, it is a consumer beware, right? In, in mm. at Pew Research Center and other places like the Associated Press, we don't pull that way for a reason because we mm. think it's fundamentally important to start with that random sample. So to some degree, yes, but um, it is the case that if you take those online convenience sample pools, if they are statistically adjusted very carefully by like a very trained statistician, they, they can uh, in some cases give you useful data, especially if you're just trying to get some top line data um, you know, about maybe everybody in the country. It, it tends to not work very well if you're trying to get, you know, deep cuts about how are women feeling or seniors or young people. Um, then sort of the, you know, the, the seams and, and the flaws in that process can be more pronounced. I wanted to find out more. Uh, you mentioned that Pew a few years ago uh, made that switch to looking at this master list of, of home addresses provided by the U.S. Postal Service. Can you talk about the reasons behind that? I saw a statistic, I think from 538, that response rates today are 6%. And when we think about how technology has evolved, many of us with cell phones, when I get a number I don't recognize, I just you know don't even answer or block it if it's a, if it's a recurring number. And so it, how is that... Uh, problematic and is that part of why you've made the switch to the master list? It absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, we've just seen for years and years that response rates to telephone polls, but surveys more broadly, they just, mm -hmm. they have been declining. And as you said, it's to the point where, you know, about 95% of the people sampled don't pick up the phone or, or don't, you know, pick up, but, but hang up. 
And, um, you know, that that is pretty alarming. So certainly the fact that um, Americans are, you know, most Americans are not willing to take surveys by the phone anymore is uh, is a big challenge and is, is a big reason why we have been getting off the phones. And, you know, the, the other related issue is the harder it is to complete one interview on the phone, the more expensive it is because you frankly, you've got professional um, you know, interviewers having to dial more and more numbers to complete one single interview. So between the declining response rates and the increasing cost, um, and frankly, some of the advantages of, of going online, uh, we did make the switch. And, and, you know, the advantages are important to mention too. Now that we're online, there's no interviewer, right? So we don't have to worry so much that people are um, maybe not being honest with us because they're talking to a stranger. Now there is no stranger that, you know, it's just people giving their answers on their cell phone or, or on their home computer. And so that does have some benefits as well. Uh, when I was preparing for this show, Courtney, I saw differences in opinion of of whether uh, people believe that the live caller uh, polls are much more accurate than these online polls. And what have you found? The differences are not huge, um, but it's true. I mean, the, the work that has been done suggests that if you look over, ele- you know, look over many elections, that the live phone does tend to be a little bit more accurate these days for the purposes of election polling. Um, But again, it's not a huge difference. And um, to my mind, it is important how the interviews are done, but it also increasingly matters um, how well the data is statistically adjusted to ensure that it's representative of everybody in the state or in the country. That matters a lot as well. And we'll be talking more about that. I believe uh, that's where waiting uh, comes in. Again, uh, my guest, uh, Courtney Kennedy, uh, she is the Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. If you've ever had questions about how polls work, uh, today's the day to call in and ask your question uh, to Courtney, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so for those of us who've been waiting to be included in public opinion polls, Courtney, but we never get the call, or the invitation by mail. How can people become involved in these public opinion polls? Well, I mean, there's <laughs> there's really no good direct way. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, we're only interviewing a thousand or a few thousand people out of the entire country. Um, and so, yeah, the, the bottom line is that the chance of being selected that way is incredibly small. So it's very common for for people to feel like, you know, they, they weren't included because they didn't get that call. I would say, though, you know, if you talk to people in New Hampshire or in Iowa, you know, in, in uh, the mm-hmm. in the nomination process, they would probably give you a different answer because, you know, <laughs> those are um, states where the population is, is not huge, um, but they're critical politically. And so they do get, you know, greater volume per capita of uh, public opinion polls. So in part, I think it depends, you know, where you live and if it happens to be um, a geography that that tends to get a high volume of, of polling, or if you're just sort of in, in a, you know, a part of the country where um, you have to rely on a national pollster, you know, sampling your, your phone number or address one day. 
What about texting? Uh, for those of us who don't want to answer a number that we don't recognize, uh, it's much easier to read a text. And I'm just wondering how pollsters have been using that technology. Sure. That is um, a very new methodology. So it's it's pretty cutting edge in that way. We haven't seen, I would say this is the first presidential election where you've seen, um, you know, uh, a number of pollsters experimenting with um, with texting. It is the case, though, while it's being done, there's not a lot of good science, uh, you know, peer-reviewed science um, that tells us how well that works. You know, the concern that I've always had is that, sure, you know, a lot of us are very comfortable on our cell phones and, and comfortable texting, but not everybody is, you know, and, and especially if you think about um, seniors or people who might not be able to afford a cell phone, there's, you know, distinct parts of um, the population where that's maybe not a very common practice. And so I, I personally, you know, be pretty concerned about how well is a text survey going to represent everybody in the population. I, I, you know, suspect it does pretty well with young folks and, and techie folks, but would it, you know, be a reliable methodology for for surveying seniors or people with, with lower incomes, uh, I'm not really sure that's the case. So um, it's, it's cutting edge, but you know, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done on that. So coming up, we're going to talk to you more about uh, what happened in 2016, especially with some of the state polls uh, that predicted uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, beating uh, Donald Trump. Before we get there, when we uh, keep hearing you say about the importance of polls being representative of America or the population that's being surveyed, help us understand the approach that pollsters take to get there, Courtney. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that some groups in the population are just more likely to take surveys, to do a poll than others. And in particular, um, older folks, um, whites, and people who have college-level education, for whatever reason, they're more likely to take surveys. And uh, I've been in the field about 20 years now, and that's just a very robust pattern that that surveys typically find that. And that's okay as long as the person doing the survey corrects for that. Um, because if you don't, those groups will be overrepresented in your data and you don't want that to happen. And so it's important that the pollster makes sure that the sample of people they interviewed is ultimately representative of the state or the country on important dimensions like age, gender, race, ethnicity, uh, education, geography, you have to make sure that, you know, the share of women in your survey is, is you know, roughly what it is nationally, or the share of people with uh, college educations is, you know, so that they're represented proportional to what they should be. Um, and if that's not the case, then, then polls can certainly be off. And, and that is part of what happened in 2016. Uh, you mentioned different variables. Uh, so we think about age, gender, and race, but when we think about how Pew has even changed uh, their methodology over the years, what are some of the, the different variables that you're, you are now weighing? I think there are up to, up to 12 now? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, years ago, it would have been more something more simple, like adjusting on 
geography, age, uh, gender, and, and race. But you know, probably in the '90s, we realized you know it's important to make sure that the level of um, Latinos is is proportional to what they are in the population. Um, and then increasingly, pollsters have realized that um, sometimes you have to get uh, the what we call the the intersection or the crosses right. So it's one thing to get the right share of you know. Um, uh, racial groups, but you actually even want to get the right share of education or gender levels within those groups um, in order to have the poll be as accurate as possible. Um, and at Pew, that's right. We've we've gotten to the point where we're adjusting on uh, about 12 variables. And that's because um, part of the focus of uh, my colleagues and I is, is not just putting out data for all Americans, but for um, subgroups that, that you know maybe haven't gotten as much attention as, as they used to. So Asian Americans, um, again, Hispanic Americans, uh, Black Americans, um, and, and white Americans as well. Um, doing, making sure that those subgroup estimates are as representative of those groups as possible. That, that does require some extra weighting uh, to get that representative. So when we think about uh, the population in our country, uh, women uh, to men, if you were to interview a thousand people and uh, 700 of those respondents were women, how would you then adjust that data? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, fortunately, there's a, a straightforward way mathematically to do that. And that is called waiting. So in this case, um, if 70 percent, you know, 700 out of a thousand people you interviewed are women, um, in the population, right, that rate's going to be more like 50% or 52%. And so we can apply weighting. So to weight down the 70% down to the level of 50 or 52% in, in our weighted data set that we use to compute the estimates. And, and we can repeat that for uh, other dimensions like age and, and race and education. So basically, you just make sure that those groups are proportional to what they should be. And for that, we rely on the Census Bureau. You know, we're lucky to be in a country where we have a really strong Census Bureau that has very accurate um, profiles and portraits of what the public looks like on all of the, these dimensions that I've been talking about. And so the polling community really lies on the Census Bureau to true up our samples and get them as representative as possible. I have to ask, Courtney, with all of the attention on uh, the 2020 census and whether enough uh, resources were put in place to get as, as good an account as possible, as someone that works at Pew Research Center, are you worried about uh, this uh, data coming out of the 2020 census that could impact the work that you're doing? It is a concern um, in in for exactly the reason that I, that I just mentioned. We rely on those data to be accurate. Um, and frankly, for, as someone who's you know, not on the inside of the Census Bureau, it's, it's very hard to gauge what the implications might be of um, you know, suspending uh, the, the field work uh, earlier than, than maybe normal. It's, it's very hard to tell. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I, I, you know, I know people that work at the Census Bureau, they're consummate professionals. Even with everything that's happened this year, I personally still have high confidence in uh, the quality of the data that they're going to produce. I think that if if there are some issues that arise from what's happened, it's probably going to be 
um, more um, in in things like um, you know the, the the population counts in particular metropolitan areas or um, census counts for very like for for small geographies like counties and um, in small areas. I, I think that the national portrait that the bureau is going to be able to, um, to to give us based on the decennial is still going to be incredibly accurate. And if there's issues, they probably show up more in some of the um, the local data would be, um, you know, uh, my read on that. You're hearing Courtney Kennedy here on Where We Live. She's Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center. As we take the hour to do a deep dive on polling, especially as we are getting closer to Election Day, are you paying attention to election polls? We want to hear from you, especially if you have a question, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about 2016 and polls, and we'll take your calls, too. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Today we're talking about polls as we get closer to Election Day. Are you paying attention to them? Do you have questions about polling? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest for the hour on Zoom, Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. So, Courtney, when we think about polls today, everyone often points to 2016 and what happened there. So can you describe the discrepancies and how that narrative formed that uh, a lot of Americans don't have a lot of faith in polling today? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to understand 2016, there's really two things that happened. Um, The thing that, you know, naturally got all the attention is, yes, there were historically bad errors in uh, the state level polls in 2016. And I'll, I'll speak to um, to why that happened in a moment. But the thing that that got lost is that the national polls actually did just fine. You know, the national polls, uh, the final average had Hillary Clinton leading the national popular vote by uh, about three percentage points and, and she ultimately had that by about two percentage points. So there was nothing wrong with the national polls in 2016. And if you fast forward to 2018, um, midterm election, the national polls did did just fine as well. They had, uh, I think, the Democrats' advantage in the House of Representatives um, about seven points, and ultimately that margin was about nine points. So, um, it, so it, it's important to keep in mind that while it was certainly understandable this this huge reaction that you know polling is broken or it doesn't work anymore. It's actually too broad a conclusion to draw from 2016. Yes, there were major problems, but it was not actually industry-wide. And if you look at pollsters, um, in particular national ones that do a good job with their weighting and they use rigorous methods with random samples, those are still working, you know, quite well. Okay, so but what did go wrong? Because certainly something did, and it really was in 2016. Uh, with the state level polls, especially battleground states, especially in the upper Midwest states um, that were maybe a bit of a surprise in that, um, you know, that they flipped um, from being traditionally uh, blue states to to red in 2016. 
And I uh, chaired a committee that lo- spent months looking into what went wrong there. Hmm. And uh, we ultimately found evidence for three things that happened. So it's not just, you know, one silver bullet. There were really several factors that contributed to those polls underestimating support for Donald Trump. So the first thing is that there really is, um, there was a late shift in opinion among undecided voters that broke in Donald Trump's favor. Uh, Trump ended up winning um, late deciding voters by 15, 20 percentage points in those key states. And historically that's pretty unusual. Um, normally undecided voters ultimately break about evenly between the two major party candidates, but they broke heavily for Donald Trump in those upper Midwest states. So from a polling perspective, that means that polls that were conducted in September or October were really done just too early to catch that late movement toward Trump. Um, A second thing that went wrong in 2016 is that most state pollsters we ultimately found out, we're not ensuring that their polls are representative in Mm -hmm. terms of education level. We spoke about this earlier, weighting Mm -hmm. by education. So why does that matter? Well, in 2016, and it will be again the case in 2020, the level of education that voters have is actually a pretty good predictor of how they vote for president. It's not perfect, of course, but on average, um, we see that College graduates, postgraduates are tending to vote Democrat for president um, in folks with less formal education um, favoring Donald Trump. So what that means is in 2016, these state pollsters, they went out, they did their polls, they, they interviewed, you know, 500 or 1,000 people. And pretty much every poll, everyone that I saw substantially had too many college graduates because they're just more likely to take surveys. And again, that's okay if you correct for it, but most state polls, you know, 70, 80% of the polls in the upper Midwest were not weighting down the college graduates proportional to what they should have been. So if you had too many college graduates in your poll, you had too many Hillary Clinton voters. Um, So that was a contributing factor. And finally, the third thing is that Donald Trump really succeeded in achieving high turnout, especially in rural areas and especially among voters um, who had voted rarely, if ever, before Donald Trump came along. And so that was a problem for polls because in recent elections, we had not seen turnout levels that high in um, with those kinds of voters and in rural areas. And so for pollsters in 2016 who are trying to model the election and and do their likely uh, voter modeling, you know, they're largely looking back at 2012, where we didn't have that kind of turnout pattern. And so Donald Trump really did, um, you know, achieve a turnout pattern that um, was kind of unexpected and and certainly turned things in his favor in in a way that a lot of people didn't anticipate. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Doris is calling in from Southbury. Doris, what's your question? Uh, my question is, in, um, in regard to the presidential election, 
what good are the polls when the election is actually decided by the electoral college and not the popular vote? Good question, Doris. Courtney? Sure. Uh, thank you for that question, Doris. I totally agree. Right. If all you care about is, um, you know, understanding who might win the presidential election, you're exactly right, Doris. It's it's a state by state contest. It's not a national popular vote. So that's why, um, you know, people who who their focus is, um, you know, the presidential race outcome, they are looking, I think, at, at the state level polls and, and trying to game out the electoral college math. Um, and so some people hear that and they think, well, why does anybody do national polls um, and like we do at Pew Research Center? And the answer to that question is, yes, you know, we do elect the president with the electoral college, but we believe it's, it's still fundamentally important to know how the country is doing as a whole. You know, we don't think that people in Florida or Michigan are somehow more important than people in Connecticut, Rhode Island, or Idaho, just because people in some states, you know, live live in battlegrounds and others don't. We, we think it's important to get a read about, you know, how is the entire country reacting to the pandemic or reacting to the economy or reacting to these candidates? So, um, you know, ultimately, I, I think it's important for us to have both national polls to let us know how you know, all of our fellow, um, you know, countrymen and women are doing. And also, you know, the state level polls for people who are really drilling down on the Electoral College. Again, you can join our conversation 888-720-9677 as we talk to Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. Peter's calling in from Glastonbury. Peter, go ahead. Hi, I had a question about where the... uh who starts the surveys? Because I know Pew does all kinds of different surveys, you know, during election year and not during election year and, you know, state level and, and full national level. But is it something that, uh, you know, does Pew have government funding and they just go out and ask a bunch of questions that Pew just makes up? Or are these standard questions that the government has? Or do government and private organizations reach out to Pew for some type of fee to, you know, ask questions on their behalf? I guess, where where did these actually all start from? That's a great question. So um, if you're looking at public polls now or even not in election year, zero um, percent of dollars come from the government. Uh, in the case of Pew Research Center, they come from uh, a nonprofit. The, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust is our... Um, uh, is our parent organization. We're a subsidiary. And the mission uh, of that nonprofit is, is really to, um, you know, en- enrich the national dialogue, to provide rigorous nonpartisan data. That's, that's our reason for being, is just to, to do um, really objective, high-quality polling so that, um, that, that people have good data about what's going on with the public. Uh, but more broadly, where does the money come from? Most um, poll, uh, well, I'd say a lot of polls, maybe most, are funded with um, dollars from news organizations. So if you think about, you know, national outlets like Fox News, CNN, they do, um, they both do high quality polling that they pay for out of their own, you know, business accounts. And same with a lot of state and local polls. You know, it could be your your local TV station or your local newspaper. 
they pay for polling as well, and it comes out of their own money. Um, and then finally, you know, the, the, the other big group of, of note is uh, the college and university pollsters, you know, like Quinnipiac and Marist and, and Monmouth. And uh, again, it, as far as I know, you know, they're, um, you know, a lot, in many cases, the colleges can do a lot of the work themselves, you know, if they have paid um, student interviewers or other paid professional staff on campus to do the interviewing, um, they can get them done that way. But, you know, in general, the answer is that they're funding that with their own money. So, um, yeah, the government is, is really not involved in uh, the public uh, opinion polling industry. Suzanne's calling in from Simsbury. Suzanne, what's your question? Hi, I was just wondering why internal polling uh, results are different than the external public polling results that we hear. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I do not have access to internal polling, so I uh, I can't speak to you know when or 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 you know when it's different necessarily. Um, and I, I think it varies from election to election. I think some elections, frankly, they're pretty well aligned, the public in the internal polling. And uh, in other elections, you hear that they might be different. Um, but as to why, why they might be different, um, you know, uh, one thing is that I think the campaigns might be more aggressive with their likely voter modeling, trying to predict who is going to turn out at what levels. And, um, you know, it might be the case that someone polling for a Democratic campaign might have a, a model that's pretty optimistic in terms of the turnout they're going to get from their core constituencies. Whereas on the other side, uh, a Republican campaign pollster might, might have their model be more optimistic in terms of, right, rural turnout or senior turnout and things like that. So those types of modeling decisions... Um, can uh, sometimes explain such differences. If you have a question about polling, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we head to break, uh, Courtney, you mentioned that the polling uh, in the 2018 midterms uh, definitely were uh, more accurate. I'm just wondering if you could just briefly explain uh, what change that made that polling uh, better than some of the state polls in 2016. Well, there weren't, was not a sea change in terms of how the polls are being done. You know, it really comes down to uh, the fundamental fact that um, in 2016, you had these state races that were won in the upper Midwest by razor thin margins, right? You think about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you're talking about races won on the order of a percentage point or less. And that's just... That's a level of precision that, that goes beyond polling, right? We started our conversation with the margin of error. And the margin of error in, in public opinion polls is really going to be plus or minus three at a minimum. You know, it can be more in, in, uh, in some polls. And so in 2016, you just had these, these race after race that were so hard to, to get exactly right. All right, so fast forward to 2018, the national conversation, really perhaps the main storyline in 2018, was control of the House of Representatives. And that was a pretty decisive outcome, right? It was about, I think, nine percentage points uh, in the Democrats' favor. And so it's so right, if the polls are off by two points, they still got the right winner. And so even though you know that margin might be similar 
to some some of the outcomes in 2016, if you get the right winner, no one notices, you know, sort of the margin by which, um, you know, the, the, the delta between the polls and the outcome. So I think just the mere like competitiveness in 2018 made it um, somewhat easier for polls. And I should say, while national polls in, in 2018 did well, um, there were some states where the polling um, was was not terribly accurate. I think there were some races in like um, uh, Tennessee and in Florida and in, in Georgia where there was some divergence um, with with what happened in 2018. So it wasn't perfect across the board. I just wanted to ask you briefly, Courtney, when we think about lessons learned as well, uh, one of the publications that Pew Research Center put out said uh, a June poll appeared to show Biden with a massive 18 percentage point lead in Michigan. But when you looked at the sample, again, more than two thirds of those interviewed were college graduates. And when we talk about the importance of waiting, uh, it, Pew went on to say a high profile polling aggregator still fed this poll into its average for the state. Uh, does that worry you about as we hear about some of these polls coming out before Election Day this year? Absolutely. Um, so there's there's good news and, and bad news. The good news is that uh, a number of pollsters, you know, are aware of the waiting problem in 2016 and have improved their process to fix that, to address that. The bad news is not everybody has. There's still a, a group of state pollsters who just refuse to do uh, a wait by education. And there's also a group of state pollsters who just refuse to say how they do their polls. You know, if you look at their press release or you look at their website, you cannot find any details about how people were interviewed and whether there was any waiting done to make the sample representative. And it's frustrating because you do, you see those polls still posted um, and published on, you know, these aggregator and forecasting websites. And, you know, I just worry about the quality, you know, at some level it's garbage in garbage out here. If, if the polls you're using to forecast stuff are not, high quality, then I, I don't care how good your model is. It's just not going to be terribly accurate. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I would note that some news organizations, some aggregators are, are, you know, have higher standards than others. There's a few I've seen this year that are, that are being a little bit more um, uh, particular in terms of having standards about the polls that they're going to put on their website. And I think that's good. I think that you know, if somebody does a poll and it's low quality, it's, you know, frankly, doesn't deserve to get anybody's attention or trust. And, mm. you know, the public needs help um, deciphering those because it's it's frankly pretty hard to tell these days to be able to look under under the hood of a poll and determine whether it's high quality or low, low quality. I don't think we can really expect the public to make those decisions. And it it takes people who really, you know, understand polling and, and what needs to be done to make them more accurate. Courtney Kennedy's Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. We'll be back after a short break.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, we're talking about polling with Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center. Courtney, we haven't even brought up the fact that this election cycle with the pandemic, there's so much unpredictability. And when we think about in our state of Connecticut, so many people voting by absentee ballot, and that is a, a big change for voters. And so how are pollsters weighing that unpredictability? Well, it, it certainly is uh, a massive change this year, and it, it's something that we are trying to study in our polls. And it's it's been striking the extent to which um, you know it's it's approached differently by Republicans versus Democrats. We see very clearly that um, at least nationwide, Democrats prefer this year to vote um, by mail, you know, or by absentee versus. Um, uh, Republicans who still prefer to vote in person. It could be early in person or election day in person, but they prefer to vote in person. And um, and so, you know, I think one thing that that uh, should alert everybody to is that you know how the the outcomes and the tallies could very well fluctuate. You know, as we progress through this process, and we really won't know. You know, until uh, a critical mass, until all the votes are counted. Um, you know, what, what these elections are going to look like. Because we do see there's a relationship between the timing of people casting their ballot and, and partisanship to some extent this year. We started the hour playing a clip of a media organization, many talking about um, how Joe Biden has a double-digit lead. Is that problematic in the sense that do polls impact voter turnout, Courtney? What do we know? Sure. Yeah. When I used to get that question uh, before 2016, I, I would really brush it off because there was no good science, you know, no good research suggesting that polls had that kind of power, you know, to actually influence what people thought or what people did. Uh, but having lived through 2016, um, I, I no longer brush that off. I do think that's a very serious issue. Um and, and actually, you know, we, we do need much more research on that question. It's a really hard question to answer because, right, the, what we're wondering is, is there a certain piece of information, you know, a poll result or something somebody heard in the news that led them to, to stay home? And that's incredibly tough to isolate and, and figure out. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that it is a possibility. I don't think we can um, brush it off anymore. And so there has been one piece of research that's been done in the past few years. Um, a group of academics tested experimentally how people react to hearing uh, an election or a poll result versus one of these probability forecasts. So, you know, by a poll result, I mean that, you know, candidate A is, is ahead of candidate B by six points or eight points or what have you. Whereas these probability forecasts is when you turn on the news and you hear, candidate A has a 90% chance of winning or something like that. And we heard a lot of both really in, in 2016. Well, what this study found is that people really react to those probability forecasts differently and like internalize them more in terms of uh, whether they're gonna vote. And so if people are told that one candidate is extremely likely to win the election, that does seem to make some people less likely to vote. Now, not everybody, but some people do seem to react to those probability forecasts that way. Uh, but they didn't see that type of effect if it was just a poll. Uh, you know, my sense is that 
the public, you know, has a pretty good feel for polls and they know that, you know, any given poll can be off and they don't take them too seriously. But if they're told again and again and again, somebody is, you know, 99% likely to win a race, that just kind of hits people differently, you know, and people are, don't have PhDs in statistics to try to parse those different statements. So I, I do worry about this. And, you know, based on the, the research that we have, I, I do think, though, that it's more serious for those statements about the percent likely to win versus just, you know, one more poll result. Courtney, we have under two minutes, but I just wanted to circle back to a question uh, from a, a listener on social media. You know, how can we tell a legitimate poll from a, a fishing expedition? Can you talk about some reputable sources beyond Pew Research Center? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so things that I think people should look for is is who sponsored the poll and who conducted it right right off the bat if it's an it's you know if it's an organization that's um that you've never heard of before you know that is a red flag not to say that all new polls are bad but you know it, it does tell you something if it's um someplace you've never heard of versus you know uh, a, a polling organization that's got a long track record that you can trust and frankly if it's a campaign poll i just i would totally disregard it because it's, it's just well known that campaigns only release polling data when it fits their agenda. And, um, you know, I would also look to see um, where did the sample come from? Was it a sample where everybody in the state had a chance of being selected or was it just done online with the convenience sample? Well, thank you, uh, Courtney Kennedy, uh, for those tips. I could talk to you for another hour, but unfortunately I have to end the show. Thank you so much, Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at Pew Research Center. My pleasure. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.